After all this, you still... I still want that gas, yes. And you had better deliver. All right. I put the outline up. So we got it. Oh, great. So I just found out that you have sound effects in Discord now? Yeah, I was going to say, um, where's the clapping coming from? Let's see. We have the quack, air horn. Oh, oh I'm no. I'm gonna I'm gonna configure a whole soundboard in here. Oh, I'm re I'm ready to be on my producer <laughs> shit now. Uh, welcome back to the greenhouse, everyone. It's me and Josh today. Um, we're gonna be covering uh, something that's been dominating the the political news as of late. I guess whatever I had planned to discuss in this podcast when I started out. What a lot of our regular coverage has become, and I, I don't hate this, right? But I think um, we're in this rotating cast of trying to read the tea leaves of uh, the different branches of the U.S. government. Um, and today we're going to be talking about the courts, or more specifically, uh, some of the controversy embroiling Supreme Court justice. The uh, latest high-tech lynching of one of America's great heroes. Man, you know it, it's funny that you mentioned that because that's exactly what he said during the Anita Hill hearings. Well, it was deliberate that I said that. <laughs> <laughs> it was supposed to be an in joke. I mean that that's a that's a deep cut in uh, Clarence Tom Thomas hating circles. But I mean, what's going on with this particular case, right? Is um. I'm feeling somewhat vindicated, and when I say I feel vindicated, I don't feel good. Um, <laughs> it's more just of like, oh, God, I'm right. But I think, you know, I've, when you have some of these discussions with people about the supposed neutrality of the court and this idea that the Supreme Court justices act with impartiality or with principle, you know, it's somewhat frustrating to deal with that. It can kind of lead you to be talking to a wall sometimes. Um, and what we're seeing here today kind of confirms all my priors that, like, no, you know, they're, 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 the, the game's fishy, to say the least. Yeah, well, you know, ironically, you know, timely enough, again, uh, I'm actually talking about, I, well, I talked about Congress and the courts today. Uh, I did ask them how they feel about uh, my students, how they felt about uh, trust in the courts and whatnot. And, you know, there's this ongoing sense of like that's shrinking every year. And that was largely the case here. Um, the only thing, the most positive thing someone had to say, uh, and there's, it's possible others had more positive views, but they, you know, just didn't share them. But someone said that he trusted the courts more than the elected bodies because he feels that that's like a more genuine expression of who they are, which he had said it in a way that was like really backhanded. Mm -hmm. um, right. So it's like, Oh, I trust that like, you know, they'll decide, you know, that like, I know what outcome I'm going to get from them, like right or wrong. And yeah, I mean, that's the courts, right? I mean, it's, it's about as political. They don't have electoral incentives, which I mean, I think is problematic in different ways uh, than what was expressed uh, by that student. But uh, you know, this is the latest uh, and greatest. Though I guess there's also that uh, that circuit court ruling uh, out of Texas on the um, 
uh, the abortion pill, its name is escaping me at the moment, but that's another thing that's happening, like, at the same time with, you know, just mass judicial illegitimization. That, that's a sticking point that I think is it's maybe worth addressing, right? Um, with this Texas ruling, right, we're kind of in a weird, like, uh, I wouldn't call it crisis, but just like, a, okay, where does the federalism apply with this ruling? Because you had a, what was it? Was it the Illinois governor or the Minnesota governor basically saying, uh, how about no? Yeah, it was, I want to say it was Illinois, but it could be. I think it was, it was, it was, one, it was one of them, yeah. Um, and I, I think, like, this is a sticking point that I've had to, it's come up in discussions I've had with folks a couple times where, like, if you mention that the courts are kind of the most undemocratic branch of our government at a federal level let's just say you know the alternative that always gets brought up is like well i mean look at the cases in which they are elected like wouldn't that play a role in um their impartiality or lack thereof um and this like um i'd say like the degree of faith someone has in the courts is once again, you know, dictated by their existing level of faith in civic religion. But I, I was thinking about this earlier today. I wanted to maybe run this by you as a supplement to our usual thesis, right? Is like, sure. I guess, you know, this hackneyed idea of American exceptionalism once again comes into play, where like, you can only really believe all this. Um, if you believe that America and its institutions are not subject to what in the rest of the world would look like a, you know, pretty clear cut corruption case, right? Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, that, I think that's that's definitely something that happens. And, and certainly we charge other countries with corruption mm -hmm. cases um, on similar or lesser grounds. And I mean, and even just domestically, right? I mean, you know, you hear, you know, the right really rant and rave about George Soros uh, at every given opportunity, yet this is sort of getting like, you know, well, it's just friends, you know, just one friend who has, you know, billions of dollars helping a brother out, you know, and it's, uh, you know, it, it, there's, you know, that, that hypocrisy, and I think there's been, you know, a debate over whether or not confronting hypocrisy really matters. Um, I think it's more so kind of maybe self-performative. Yeah. In some ways, right, more than it is persuasive for other people. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, like, you know, I, I think you're, you're right to say that in general that it sort of ties into, you know, that, that broader notion of, like, you buy into it based on, like, you know, where you find yourself in society. I mean, if you agree with them more often than not, you're fine. Um, the American exceptionalism, the fact that we kind of, in some ways, don't really look close to home when it suits our needs. Um, we do when it, you know, doesn't. But for the most part, we kind of just ignore a lot of that stuff. Yeah, and this is, I, I don't know if this is directly related, right? But in some of the Obama-era discussions about money and politics, right? I think one of the criticisms of, pe of you know, the side that wants money out of politics 
even though I think that can kind of be a reductive solution at times, right? Is that, well, you have to prove there was a quid pro quo. And it's like, sometimes, like, my my initial view on this sometimes is like, you know, if the, if two things can be correlated, that alone is suspicious. But also yeah. just calling it out like that in the way they did um, puts this, like, unnecessary burden of proof on people who want to, you know, bring truth to power, basically, or, you know, like, try to bring things out into the open. Where well, it's like, well, you have to prove they were influenced. And it's like, how do you... Well, and not even <laughs> just that. Like, I, I think, you know... For the most part, I think people are arguing like the money out of politics, which I mean, as you said, like it's not, it's an inelegant solution, especially if it's like, well, you know, what happens to people who are just inherently more wealthy or whatever. Right. Um, but, you know, like they're not, they're not suggesting for the vast majority of the time, like criminal punishment for any of these things, right? I mean, they're just asking for like, you know, in, you know, usually when it's brought up money in politics, they're talking about campaigns, which doesn't apply to the courts. Um, or at least these courts. Um, and, and the reason with that is like, you know, they're trying to sort of, um, sorry, brain fire on that. But, you know, like, the point is, is like, they're not trying to like say that these people are criminally liable. They're trying to say that, you know, we, we want to prevent this influx of money having any type of influence, right? Whether or not it's, it's a perceived mm -hmm. or an actual one, it's not really about, um, you know, prosecuting people for receiving too much money. Maybe it's, you know, them forfeiting their office. And, you know, occasionally when we have um, more egregious violations, then, yeah, we can have some criminality here. And, you know, certainly there's some calls. Um, I don't know how widespread they are, but, you know, for, like, impeachment of someone like Clarence Thomas's stature in this case. But, you know, it's kind of a separate issue. Yeah, like, like functionally the quid pro quo rule that like you get from conservatives kind of translates to me like not only do you have to prove the financial linkages which in some cases are sometimes out in the open right you then have to find like documentation that someone's mind was changed and sure. that's you know how do you even begin well, to, you know, fight that. I don't know. Well, then the scholarly argument generally is when it comes to money and politics, and I think that that's kind of what's being argued with here as well, is like, do I buy that Clarence Thomas's mind is changed in terms of, like, the way he would actually rule on a case being different? Not really, right? I think that he's most likely going to side with this guy on cases regardless. Just It just fits with his, you know, his personal jurisprudence and his ideology. But... You know, there are certain things, especially in the case of Clarence Thomas, where, you know, it's been pointed out several times, him not uh, recusing himself from a number of cases, uh, mm -hmm. the most notable of which have involved, like, his wife in January 6th. Uh, but, you know, cases that might have involved this guy as well, or others, where he should have recused himself and didn't. And, yeah, he's decided, like, every case that this guy has been, like, a someone cited, uh, someone that was, like, on the case, a brief or whatever, or an organization that tied the amicus brief. Uh, it's all stuff that is, um, you know, he, he's decided in, in this guy's favor every time. Uh, whether or not it's because he's gotten that money or not, kind of is inconsequential, right? 
Um, we argue generally even in, in, in campaigns that for the most part, people are giving money to people that already agree with them. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not really challenging that notion. Um, I mean, I certainly agree with it probably most of the time anyways. But I think you know, in this particular case as well, it's just it, it, the influence doesn't matter. It's like sort of, you know, I, I think people are even bothered by the sense that you're like rewarding someone for questionable behavior uh, in general, right? And like this, it's sort of, it creates a system of enfranchisement where the people who already think a certain way kind of already have like this buy-in, right? Like Clarence Thomas is able mm -hmm. to sort of coast through, you know, the judicial system um, and remain there for years because he, you know, had the right views to begin with. Or, you know, maybe, you know, some stuff was changed by him recognizing, you know, strategically that like, hey, you know, a black man doing a, doing a white man's, uh, you know, grift that has, you know, its own potential. Let's tap into that. Yeah, I, th I think that's that's spot on where it's like we have this very nebulous public understanding of what corruption is. Like we all can point to what we deem to be corruption and we can say that it's bad unequivocally, but then finding like the standard for it is dicey, especially in our system that tends to I mean, I'll I'll say it like it is, right? Is that it? It does benefit people like uh, Clarence Thomas's buddy Harlan Crow, yeah, uh, more so than it does uh, someone who donated twenty seven dollars to Bernie. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. let's uh, let's let's get into the specific charge at play here. Um, and this is this is the kind of thing where I'm just I'm I'm citing Wikipedia here, not because I I prefer it, simply to keep things simple. It's it's honestly, you know, it's it's a great synthesis of this information a lot of times. Sometimes it is, exactly. So the specific case here, in 2023, ProPublica reported that Crow has given several gifts to Associate Supreme Court Justice Clarence, Tom, Clarence Thomas, including a $19,000 Bible that belonged to Frederick Douglass, a portrait of the justice and his wife. Um, tax filings also show that uh, Crow's Foundation gave $105,000 to Yale Law School, Thomas's alma mater, even though Thomas ha has been on record saying he regretted ever going. That's funny. <laughs> um, the the key point that's egregious is uh, uh, he, w he had accepted numerous week-long luxury trips, including island hopping on Crow's super yacht, uh, international and domestic private jet travel, uh, private resort stays, one of the more spicy examples was also um, Clarence Thomas being invited to, uh, oh God, uh, what's the grove that all the billionaires go hang out at with the big Oh, o? gosh, I just had it too. I can't remember. Bohemian Grove, exactly. Yes. Like, <laughs> it's, it's just like the, the, the popular example of rich guys like conspiring in secret that's where Clarence Thomas was, you know, it's, it, it's, it's almost comical if it wasn't like, you know, somewhat startling. Right. And specifically why, aside from maybe my ideological biases deeming this bad, um, the ethics and government act of 1978 passed after Watergate. Um, and the law requires that justices, judges, members of Congress and federal officials must disclose most gifts. These rules were clarified and updated in March 2023, but 
but still allow exceptions to the reporting rules if a gift of food, lodging, or entertainment is deemed personal in nature and the hospitality has been directly offered by an individual who has personal relationship to the official in question. The new rules do, however, require disclosure of stays at commercial properties as well as private jet travel. And that's the, that's the sticking point here is like, yeah, there's there's several violations of that act here. Right. Yeah. And, and I've seen a lot of people kind of just defend it like, well, you know, it's like he's just a friend. He's just hanging out with a friend. It's like, well, like this friendship conveniently uh, started, you know, within the past 25 years. Um, yep. Well, after uh, Clarence Thomas was appointed to the court uh, and confirmed to the Supreme Court. Uh Obviously, you know, post-Watergate, that's the era Clarence Thomas was, uh, you know, sworn into, right? It's not like he is someone who uh, just happened to, you know, like, well, he's old, he just forgot. Like, it's like, no, this is this has always been the case uh, during his entire tenure, um, at least on the Supreme Court. Um, I can't remember what he was doing uh, before that. I know a lot of justices are typically circuit court judges. I don't. I don't necessarily recall if he was or not. Um, but it's inconsequential, right? I mean, it's work or something like that. Something weird like that. I'll take a look. Gosh, yeah, just why not? Just go through the circular um, federal society loop. Um, I actually should go back up to the top of this page. Let's see. District Court of Columbia appeals. Yeah, Home that wasn't much Bush. longer before though. Yeah, Homeward Bush nominated him to the D.C. Circuit following Bork's departure. Okay, okay, so that's the Bork linkage. And that's immediately preceding his Supreme Court nomination, because that's also under Bush. What was he before that? Before that... uh, Assistant Secretary of Education for the Office of Civil Rights in the Department of Education on May 1981. What do you think uh, his stance on CRT is? <laughs> I I kind of I'm I'm kind of realizing like there is there's indeed a limit to what me and you can comment on in some of these cases and like I think there is a discussion that needs to be had on like how conservatism manifests in different parts of the United States as a regional phenomenon and also mm-hmm. like culturally right like. I think when we have been talking about conservatives, we've mostly been talking about suburban whites. How yeah. it manifests, you know, in the black political tradition is its own thing, not really well understood by the mainstream. Some recent phenomenons like uh, Trump's popularity with uh, like Latinos is also like well, and God, you had that. Um, where where was that? Um, I saw it this morning where there was the uh, black rep- state representative who just went on, like, the most, like, xenophobic trans rant I've ever heard. Um, gosh, who was it? I recall what you're saying. I think it was some state senator. I, I know it was trending earlier. Yeah, I, I can't remember where he's from, but yeah, like, he just went, like, hard on him, and, you know, like, just how much of a uh, a proud Christian conservative Republican he is and whatnot. It's like, you get, like, I mean, you, you, you wouldn't even expect maybe that, like, some of the... Um, African Americans that you get that are more conservative, you would think that they would tend to maybe skew a little bit more moderate, um, just with our general like preconceptions about that you know ethnic group. Um, but uh, that's not the case. <laughs> yeah, not always I, the case. 
I don't know because I was I was reading up on on Clarence Thomas before this one, and like I saw that he was influenced by both Thomas Sowell and Ayn Rand, and you know, Ayn Rand is just uh, the brain killer in my opinion, right? But you could argue her work is somewhat neutral of race. Thomas Sowell, I mm-hmm. keep seeing him like you know how like when you're on YouTube and every time like you watch something of like a not not even necessarily like left wing persuasion you might have just like watched a daily show clip or like a uh sure. cnn god forbid and then like thomas sowell will come up as like a recommended um video and from what i could tell is that he was some kind of um black conservative econ- economist i don't necessarily understand everything about his work and black conservatism as a whole is one of those things that like I don't have a working knowledge of, so I'm not going to comment too hard. But it might be worth going into with someone who's more well versed in a future episode, or just you know something maybe to pick up on because you know not 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 to not to humanize the American conservative mu- uh, movement, <laughs> but it's not really a monu- it's it's not a monolith. It's a very no. complex beast to say the least. Yeah, and like just it's really kind of understanding the different motivations too. I mean, I think a lot of them have like very similar um prescriptive interest for government um and whatnot, right? Where like or they they believe that's um either a certain problem. But like, you know, it's there's different there's disagreements really over like kind of what core problems are and how they should be solved. Most of them would argue the private sector and like very little in the uh the public sector, but you know, it's it, there's generally that like consensus of like shrinking the scope of government uh, in a number of key areas. But you're right; it's not totally monolithic. There's a lot of there's some nuance that does get lost. Right, and maybe maybe tying us back to where we were when we started. Right, is that you know like how do these um, various constituencies of the American right come to interact? Right. Because we can kind of maybe get into Thomas's own background as like uh, someone coming up in the seventies as a as an attorney finding um, the new intellectual strain of the right, which is this libertarian push. Yeah. Um, Crow himself, who's also the other uh, party in this in this story, right? Uh, founding member of the club for growth served on the board of the American Mm. enterprise Institute um, has donated almost $5 million to Republican campaigns and conservative groups. And is, you know, when we bring up the Bohemian Grove uh, connection, he is a member of that club. You know what I mean? So he's like sending out the invite for this uh, secret meeting. So it's, this this is one of those things where it's like I don't necessarily have the language for this other than like there's very selective lenses applied to how we talk about collusion, particularly along class lines. We often have conspiracy theory as like the stand-in for addressing it. Maybe parapolitics if you're like, you know, savvy to a certain lens. But very broadly, like, I think there's this culture of, like, deeming it somewhat impolite to bring up these connections at best and outright dismissing them at worst, 
if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, you're right. It's, it's a coping mechanism probably more than anything. God damn it, it's all cope. It's cope all the way down. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's again, it's like, you know, I, there's a reason why I brought up that quid pro quo principle. Like, um, what it does is, like, it kind of puts you in, like, the the prostrate position every time you try to bring up these connections. So there's this like unnecessarily high burden of proof because now you have to prove someone's mind was changed. That's an incredibly subjective thing. How do you prove that? And also like, you know, like there is a, (laughs) a combination of self doubt and maybe like poor presentation style will lead you to look like that Charlie day meme in front of the whiteboard. (laughs) But at the same time, like, this is not necessarily uh, hardball journalism me and you are doing here. This is existing reporting that is pretty solidly backed at this yeah. point. And these are connections that, um, you know, are are worth looking into. Even if you can't say that, oh, you know, Clarence Thomas had his mind changed. The fact that he's associating with people with inordinate amounts of power is something that I think, you know, needs to be addressed. It calls into question the integrity of the system that we say can't be changed, you know? Well, yeah, and I think, you know, it's it's it raises these integrity questions in, in some ways, like maybe in this kind of just barely beneath the surface style way, right? And what I mean by that is, you know, we might consider that um, even if it's not corruption, right? It's just the fact that it, it creates this appearance, right? That there's this appearance of bias. Um, and then that's kind of problematic. I mean, I'm not, you know, one of those guys like, you know, Chief Justice Roberts, who's, you know, very much like, you know, the court's only corrupt if you say it's corrupt, basically. Um, you know, if you acknowledge it, then that's the delegitimization of it, not the actual acts that are the problem. Right. And it creates this appearance, right? If, if this is someone he's associating with and, and we haven't gotten to the real juicy details about Harlan Crow, which is his uh, historical collections um, oh, yeah, in particular, <laughs> in particular, his uh, apparently vast collection of uh, Nazi memorabilia uh, that he has. Uh, apparently, this has been sort of like, I guess, an open secret with people who have like been affiliated with him or have uh, encountered him. There was one report that I saw um, kind of collaborating that where they said that they were there for uh from uh that was posted by a socio uh, socio-technical researcher uh dana boyd and she had noted that um she had gone there for <laughs> of all things a meeting about the future of democracy at his uh, <laughs> at his house which is like i mean if you have a collection of nazi memorabilia i think your thoughts on the future of democracy are uh, spoken for in a lot of ways. No, that's that's uh, that needs no further contradiction to, for me. Let's maybe get into some of those items in that connection in that collection, right? So, out of order, uh, Crow's Dallas residence is a home to an extensive collection of Nazi memorabilia, including two paintings by Hitler. That's like. That that's like a leg up from having a George Bush painting. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and a signed copy of mine. Painted them. <laughs> and he has a signed copy of Mein Kampf. Um, his private library contains a collection of eight thousand five hundred books and manuscripts, including historical documents from Juan Ponce de Leon, 
uh, Christopher Columbus, Amerigo Vespucci, George Washington, Robert E. Lee, and all the signers of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States. Additional items also include Napoleon's writing desk and the Duke of Wellington's sword from 1815. Like, some and of then, these write are just kind of like rich douchebag can just like buy up all these historical artifacts that, you know, belong in a museum, right? Some some of it is that, but then it's like, you know, what the ideological inconsistency is not being pointed out in the press, um, mainly because it's just it's it it should be self evident. But yeah, let's let's get into the inconsistency here because we mentioned the Nazi artifacts. We also mentioned um, like again having Juan Ponce de Leon and like Columbus and Vespucci is, as well as Washington and Lee is like oh this is some manifest destiny bullshit. Yeah, like I mean the the Columbus Washington like declaration of independence signatories, right? That's kind of just like well like American patriot like civic religion type stuff, right? Robert E. Yeah. Lee, you know, raises some eyebrows, but like we haven't totally, you know, canceled the Confederacy yet in the year 2023. Um does raise but like you know, it's like whatever. Like you, you don't I, I from a point of ignorance, you can maybe tolerate some of that. The Nazi stuff and some of the other things, yeah, that's a little suspect. You've also got this, uh, the Garden of Evil. Exactly, exactly. Which has, like, these statues of authoritarian leaders. Um, not Hitler, by the way. Yeah, specifically the the leaders in question here. So, like, we've got Lenin, Stalin, Castro, Zedong, or sorry, we got Mao, God, how did I fuck that up? We got Marx in there. Marx was not even a politician. He was a theorist. Right. Hosni Mubarak, not even part of the same ideological movement as like the as the prior. Tito at least makes some sense. I, I don't know how to say Nic- uh, Nikolai Kukescu's last name. I know he was the Romanian communist leader. Yeah. You got Walter Ubricht, who was in the uh, one of the founders of the KPD. Gavrilo Princip again has nothing to do with the communist movement, as far as I understand. Belakun, who was a Hungarian revolutionary, and then Che Guevara. Um, so it it still doesn't add up. He says that he acquired these former uh, public monuments after the collapse of the Soviet Union in the Eastern Bloc. Cool. So you stole something while the government was being torn. Right. Yeah. Nice. It's, it's nice. straight up just colonial exped- uh, like <laughs> expeditionalism, right? And to get this well and i I guess uh princip i mean is it like that i'm wondering like it's like the through line that all of these have like even beyond just um you know like whatever their ideology is they're all kind of anti-monarchist i mean i don't even understand it's really principled i mean he just killed you know (laughs) he killed france ferdinand uh so like that's i guess i guess the only thing i can think of where it's like well, I mean, I don't know if it was necessarily ideologically motivated. I, I'll admit I have never really um, studied him in uh, particular detail. Yeah, it's like, I, I don't know, because like from what I understood, at least from taking AP European history, so I'm not an expert, uh, Princip seemed like more like of a of a nationalist of that age than anything else. Yeah. Mubarak also doesn't add up, like... I, I don't know what his role in any of this is. Hey, dude, this just happened to be the stuff he could steal. 
Okay. Right. Like right. it's, <laughs> but the the fact of the matter is, it's like you have this this garden of evil, and then you have Nazi stuff that's kept separate, kept in a point of privilege, right? Right. And so... like the defense for this that has come from the right, right, is that like a, a lot of people and like all these people, it's been kind of like discussed, and it's not it's not even it doesn't even require really deep investigative journalism to discover because a lot of them are relatively open about it, right? They are his also friends and bene fellow beneficiaries. Exactly. There's exactly. people who are, are already benefiting from this relationship with him. So, of course, they'll defend him. So their argument is like, well, you want to keep stuff that you hate, um, which apparently means I've been doing collecting all wrong. That's what uh, we do for... on Twitter. That's what we do on That's what we do on Twitter. We're collecting things we hate. Yeah, I mean, I don't... Uh... I don't have like a file or anything of it, but you know, I just, you know, usually my collection is uh, I scroll past it and I probably remember it um, for the stuff that I hate. But um, yeah, I mean, like the thing is that that notion is just bullshit, right? Like the fact that you collect things that you hate to remind you of how much you hate them. I mean, that's like people stalking their ex pretty much. type of behavior, right? Like that's just really weird and bizarre. And and I don't buy it, right? Who has a fucking own copy of Mein Kampf? And it's like, well, you know, it's because I really hate Hitler. Like, in, in, like, in, in that case, like, shouldn't, like, the Holocaust History Museum and all these Holocaust memorials, shouldn't they just have, like, a proud, like, statue of Adolf Hitler or a swastika all over it? Because it's, you know, you, you want to remember what you hate. Well, and that's that's the thing, right, is, like, no, they correctly determined, no, you build the monument in response to everyone who was unfairly, their lives were lost. So, yeah. and, and specifically, you know, the the intellectual fig leaf uh, from Crow, he says he collects such memorabilia because he hates communism and fascism. And that's that's the line here that, like, keeps coming up, you know? I've, I've brought this up in past episodes of the podcast. It's probably something that's worth addressing. It's like... The regard, regardless of your view of various communist projects, um, and like you know, your position on U.S. foreign policy, I think it's intellectually lazy at best and malicious at worst to compare those projects, uh, to fascism just because you find them aesthetically similar or you were told that in school or what have you. There's incredibly different things happening in history in both those cases. And in, in the cases where, you know, I'll be fair, I'll be very frank, right? Like I would say that the global struggle for communism did more good than any of the fascist movements ever did in any of their missteps. You know what I mean? But, yeah. you know, whether uh, the American right does this intentionally or unintentionally, they have become very effective at um, understanding that, you know, American pop history and American pop culture uh, understands the Nazis as bad correctly and with very little convincing. Even with, like, a... <laughs> A resurgent far right on the rise you know nazis are very easy to use in media as like a stock villain because they are irredeemable mm -hmm. um but then i think like one of the one of the brilliant things the american right has devised in its um various attempts to stifle the left's domestically and abroad is equating communism with fascism 
point blank. 100%, yeah. And uh, again, like, it should be... It, it, these these things have to be called into question, where, again, Harlan Crow, wealthy and influential guy, highly involved in several avenues of not just... Um, elite gatherings but also conservative policy making and political priority setting uh, is also involved in this like project of intellectual laziness and malfeasance and is also you know whether or not he has influence over clarence thomas is one thing the fact that he's buddy buddy with a member of the supreme court and this isn't called into attention until like 20 years later yeah. should be worrying 100% yeah as I said, the influence doesn't necessarily i mean like the influence is there regardless right i mean like you know i you know <laughs> whatever is you know said on the show while i'm here generally it's like you know whether or not i like 100% agree with it or not i mean it's like this is the association this is like our like we're both influenced kind of by each other through association and that's without you know millions of dollars kind of at play right uh it's like you know whatever types of things you kind of associate with him it's like and the thing is clarence thomas would never outright denounce any of this right he would just sort of you know call it another lynching or whatever um you know what whatever type of um vile thing he can associate with it uh, not the act itself that he committed but just you know the, the criticism of it because naturally just criticizing someone in a public space is obviously tantamount to, you know, the types of racial discrimination that people would face in the South, right? I mean, it's one-to-one -one comparison. Um, yeah, and it's, 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 it's just like a ton of intellectual dishonesty, I think, on display here all around. Uh, it's amusing seeing, you know, Ben Shapiro have to, you know, go out to bat for a Nazi. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, this there's, article there's you no, shared from there's the nothing to their there's nothing to their intellectual rigor anymore. It's it's gone, if it was ever there. One one hundred percent. I think like you know we've talked about like the intellectual heavyweights in the right versus like this kind of well fuck it we don't need a justification we'll act without it and I think like here we are once again even in the space where it is I mean you know you could argue the courts is the space for the nerds and they have to hide it with intellectual fig leaves but here we are again and like this uh article you sent me from the lever where uh many of the pundits who are coming forward to defend both harlan crow and thomas uh clarence thomas uh are kind of being paid by both by 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 thomas here too yeah or not, or not by thomas by crow actually yeah 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 so it's it's it's, it's once again like we're in like meme politics territory where it's like well this is this is class solidarity right you know we don't everyone said we don't have it in america here it is here's your <laughs> class solidarity but we talk about class warfare here it is <laughs> oh god attack I, I mean, on one is attack is an attack against them all it's okay we don't have corruption in the united states we have lobbying <laughs> oh dear god i any any other country, you hear a report about it, we're, we got boots on the ground, we got CIA ready to destabilize. 
when it when it happens here, well, maybe the left is 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 uh, is overreacting here. I don't even think you can say that. I mean, any like legitimate left, like in terms of like you know empowered, uh, supposedly leftist individuals, uh, they are asleep at the wheel at best. Uh, we've seen uh, Dick Durbin, uh, what is he, the Judiciary Chair right yeah. now, um, shirking. Um, I, I, I think he might get bullied into actually doing something, uh, but you know, just calling on uh, John Roberts to launch an internal investigation, which worked out great for the Dobbs leak. Um, you know, on in great fact finding there, really, uh, really nailed it in terms of finding out who who was responsible for that. But you had, you know, and um, kind of another point, too, and just in terms of their, like, poor handle on the judiciary is you have uh, good old Diane Feinstein. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> who apparently has missed uh, 58 Senate votes in the last month because of illness. Uh, which is kind of, this played a direct role in their ability to actually confirm federal judges and whatnot, because if Dems don't have all the Dems present on the Judiciary Committee, they have to get like a, a discharge petition, all that wonderful stuff to actually get people out. Uh, but because we thought it was a wonderful idea to put an 89-year-old on the Judiciary Committee, um, we are now beholden to her personal health in terms of any level of judicial control, or even just judicial accountability. It's, I mean, not to bring back something I was saying last year, but I mean, here we are again, right? Where it's like every little fundraising email you're forced to look at, every like uh, thing that's beaten over your head in political coverage and op-eds of like, you know, it doesn't, it's almost like they're saying it, it doesn't matter if we don't do our job. You want your rights that are hanging by like the the most threadbare statutes to 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 continue to exist for another year if you have to vote for this you you have to vote for somebody who doesn't even know where they are <laughs> it's it, it, this is i mean it, it, it it's it's criminal how, how how they can get away with this almost and especially like for for anything to even function in it when it comes to this this issue, right? If you have a, a member, a key vote who's not present, what are you doing? What 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 opposition are you running to a supposed resurgence of Trump? What where's this fundraising money going? I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to raise another alarm here, but it's it's like what is what is this uh, what is all this sound and fury signifying nothing for? Yeah, I mean that that's the that's the greater mystery, right? You know, it's it, yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, it, it, you you just really wonder like what like what are we trying to accomplish here if we um you know, we're raising money for campaigns and I'm not just trying to like I mean, I I guess I still nominally believe in like the electoral process and whatnot, I'm not I'm like, not saying know, voting like, yeah, and stuff like that, but it's like you know you look at the results that they're sort of presenting you with, and you really kind of wonder like, well, what is going on? You know why are like you know the whole vote blue no matter who thing? And I, I don't know if that was an elite generated thing or like 
I've seen a lot of cringy things from campaign organizers. It wouldn't shock me if they were just like, yeah, like this is catchy. Let's let's stick with it. But it, like again, like in something like Diane Fines, and she's in like I mean she's in California. <laughs> like you're telling me you couldn't find someone like just like e- even not not even necessarily ideologically to the left of her, just someone who was like conscious. Who's thirty years younger? That's all you 30 need. Years someone, younger. That's like, all you need. You can't find anyone. That's absurd. This is I think I think once again, like there's there is a Kristen Cinema effect here where it's like someone's own reticence to do the right thing or just like have a stance on something. Um can be traded up for cash or influence. But then in this case, like, I don't know who this benefits. Like, there's a lot of power to be had in a U.S. Senate seat on the Judiciary Committee. And, like, to have it basically kind of wasted like this is criminal. I don't know how else to put it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I, I think that's the best way. This is an angle I didn't even consider. Dear God. Well, I mean, we just kind of got that story, like, I mean, obviously, like, you know, 58 days, I mean, that 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 tracker's been, you know, sliding or whatever, but, like, that was something I just was, like, brought to my attention, and, like, it's it's so weird, because, and I, you know, I alluded to this at the top of the show, that, like, I cover some current events in class and whatnot, and, like, lately, it's been, like, eerily timely, where it's like, oh, hey, like, Clarence Thomas, I'm going to be talking about that literally the day before we're going to talk about like judicial politics the congress's ability to check it judicial legitimacy at large and things like that um and then even better i mean we i talked about this with the trump one but like you know literally talking about like well he's set to be arraigned literally as i am speaking to you right now like there's it's 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 a really bizarre time in american politics and like that in that like very specific very personal way for me uh but I mean, yeah, it's like it's it, the whole thing is just problematic. Where it's like we we have people who I don't know if that they're fundamentally unserious about wielding power in a way that actually achieves objectives, and that they're just so obsessed with process that they just don't care, or if it is like just this is just the best they can do, which is possibly the more disturbing. And this and this is why, like, I had to give our. This, this little disclaimer at the start of like what we kind of do is reading the tea leaves at this point because like this is this is stuff that is beyond the imagination to begin with like in the most like in the upper house of a legislative body in, in a country let alone one as powerful as the united states there's there's a seat being occupied by someone who is incapable of fulfilling the duties of their office by virtue of old age and like because of the way our parties are structured, they can't be ousted. Because of the way things are run in the state, it would be too hard to get uh, a vote of no confidence or like a removal from office. Because of the amount of programming we've done on ourselves about how the system's supposed to work, you can't just be like, okay, let's let's get grandma out of here and let's just put someone in the seat. It's okay. Yeah. It's it's astonishing and like 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 I like I like I was mentioning with everything else before it's like this system 
has been comically put under new stresses by the day that the constitutional order was not designed to account for, nor could it have accounted for accounting for. And what's ironic to me in all of this, right, is, like, my, my idea that, like, well, the system by design supports and enables bourgeois rule still remains to be true, even in cases of misconduct and just just not even, like, running, not even, not even being at the wheel. The machine handles it somehow. Yeah, and it's, you know, in some ways, I don't think that, the you know, the bourgeois rule enabled by this was never, I don't think it was ever fathomed that it would get to, like, this level. Um, both of, you know, just, like, the level of depravity and also just the level of, you know, wealth at play. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the, the one thing that's, like, probably not surprising about this, I mean, as you said, like, you know, like, it's as unimaginable as a lot of this is. The one thing that's probably really consistent here is that um, Clarence Thomas is a piece of shit. Like that's the one. That's the one thing in the at least that we've kind of gone through here. That's like not shocking in the slightest. It, this it, again, Clarence Thomas being appointed to the court is one of those enduring acts of evil that the Bush family has left on the country. Years after leaving office, homework Bush was on one man. He, he was again just like we didn't even. There was no way to address this before, but like, there's something very malicious about like, oh, Thurgood Marshall's retiring. Let's just let's just ratchet up the contradictions and find a black conservative to replace the office. Yeah, I mean it's and you know as much as all that hoopla was made over. Um, the supposed affirmative action in Biden appointing uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson to the court. Right. I mean, that's, I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, Reagan, when he ran for office, said he would appoint a woman. We got Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, you know, Fergus Marshall, the first black man on the court, is replaced by another black man. Um, and it, it's one about as far from him politically and ideologically as possible. And I think, and I think again, like this does speak to the project of what I'll call the judicial right, right? Where it's like we have a a litany of conservative like justices at the ready, you know, nurtured and groomed by various fronts like the Heritage Foundation, the Federalist Society, you name it, right? Uh, to staff any office as soon as it's open um and clarence thomas arguably was you know one of the early people in that line right Mm -hmm. but what this project has always served to do is to in in addition to trying to ban abortion and in, in addition to uh prevent anything good from happening is to maintain this kind of order and uh his own philosophy of being a textual originalist is 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 like the salient point in all of this that this is all happening 
for a guy who believes the system fundamentally does not need to be changed. In fact, changing it is immoral in some way. Trying yeah, I mean, that's, that is really, yeah, I was going to say that really is the, the core argument um, from the like, textual originalists, right? That, you know, changing the system in any way is immoral, which it, I don't know how you manage to sell that to anyone who's not like just ludicrously enfranchised by the status quo. Um, they somehow manage it. I have no idea how. Um, I would like to have that power someday. Uh, I don't think it'll ever come, but... I don't know if I need that power. Like, if, if you have that power, you are not you at the end of it. I don't know. It's bizarre. I, I'm speechless, man. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's it, and that's just I mean that's a broader topic for like another episode down the line maybe it's just on like just a weird uh, like jurisprudential uh, fascination with you know originalism and stuff like that and I, I don't know I mean it's you know they it, I don't even think that he truly believes in it uh, Scalia you know sort of the um, his intellectual senpai if you will on the uh that front uh you know i mean like these are the same folks who you know great you know basically created gun rights as we know it with uh, uh dc versus keller i mean that was uh, more or less it bears all the trappings of the supposed judicial activism that they are so angry that the left engages with and and, and this is kind of like a broader topic too with you know when it comes to the what's derided as judicial activism it's like they use it initially to kind of get you of stuff that's maybe a little bit more contentious, right? Like abortion, other stuff where, like, you know, it's, you know, there's a decent divide in how the country views it, uh, though that's no longer really the case for abortion, a lot of other issues. But they also, when they talk about it, they ostensibly mean stuff like Brown v. Board of Education. Right. And, like, all these other things where it's like, wait a minute, like, you know, this is stuff that, like, is kind of universally seen as good by most people, and you're trying to argue that it's actually a moral affront to our constitutional system. Which, you know, I, I, I mean, maybe this is just my own like civic religiosity coming through or whatever. But it's like I'd like to think at least a good chunk of the of the framers or founders would have wanted the system to adapt uh, to to fit more modern morals over time. I mean, that's certainly is the arguments that come through in like the Federalist Papers and all the stuff that they're writing at the time of its inception. Uh, yet we have this really kind of just bizarre prevailing theory that some people in the judiciary have. Yeah, and like I think I think in addition to what you mentioned, like it may be worth just examining like the the great society era of American liberalism, right? Because mm -hmm. I think, like, you know, both both me and you, prior to maybe coming into this leftist lens that we've come into now, right? Like, I'd say that, like, when, when you know, when you self-identified as a progressive back in 2014 or whatever, and you're retweeting all the stupid the uh, Teddy Roosevelt posts, <laughs> you know, you're talking about LBJ, 
you know, of course, you're ignoring things like foreign policy, the wars, of American course, imperialism, yeah. because by perspective, you're blinded by that. But at the same time, right, like great society liberalism is a project that had a a real vision for like trying to reconcile the contradictions of the American state with its supposed founding ideals while also trying to be this kind of alternative to to the communist world we could argue how effective it was we could argue about you know was it dismantled or was it unsustainable that's not really stuff i'm qualified or just willfully unsustained right right there's also that angle to it and this is this is a this is an era of history that I'm interested in, but I don't have a lot of background knowledge on, right? But, like, I would say that, like, the any humanistic or any positive qualities of American liberalism come out of that tradition to some extent. And I think with uh, the Clinton era, you know, we have a kind of posturing to the good vibes, but none of, but none of that vision. Even Obama-era liberalism uh, had none of those aspects. Obama himself famously said that I believe in American exceptionalism. So, you know, it's to that end that, like like we mentioned, the 70s and the era that Clarence Thomas is coming up in and also just H.W. Bush himself post- uh, post Watergate, this is like the Republican project to dismantle uh great society liberalism. Maybe you could argue there was not much redeemable about it in the first place because of things like Vietnam, or you could argue that Nixon was well, just Well we like, kept that anyways. So you know it's exactly. not like <laughs> Nixon that's, enabled the, one, it, yeah. that's the one side of it that they were like more than comfortable with keeping around. Pretty pretty much, yeah. But it's like I'd say that, you know, Clarence Thomas and like that Ayn Randist, uh, almost like libertarian individualist right perspective that came up with H.W. Bush, who really was, you know, a ghoul of the foreign policy state, with Reagan, who was like the avatar of American libertarianism and individualism. These are the people who were actively involved in tearing up uh the great society model and ideology and you see that with the dismantling of social support services with a renewed interest in uh ratcheting up uh contradictions with views on race sex and identity yeah. and you know, just 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 everything that we kind of deem you know to be problematic in the current in the current you know age i think is a echo of that cataclysm and i again i'm not i i'm not here to defend lbj and jfk but to put things very simply that was the vibe shift that i think we're living in the in the wake of and clarence thomas is one of the people who enabled that and his influence is long. It is tied to the class interests that 
may have enabled and supported those changes. And these vibe shifts are not accidental. They are not errors of history. Uh, these are concerted efforts. Uh, we ha- do have class solidarity, as you mentioned. Um, and it's the upper classes that are more aligned and organized in our country. Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that really is probably the, you know, the, kind of the best way to sort of synthesize all that, right? Is it's, you know, this, um, the moment has sort of been defined within this, like, you know, kind of neoconservative lens. And a lot of that is, you know, kind of it's the grandest. Uh, Clarence Thomas doesn't necessarily get all the credit or discredit that he deserves. Um, I think, you know, he was always kind of his own, you know, willful uh, silence on a lot of things. I think it was kind of got him uh, overshadowed by Scalia or even, you know, some of his more modern contemporaries like Alito and uh, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and whatnot. And, but the, and, you know, they're all kind of animals of the same ilk um, cut from this, this same cloth that's, um, you know, relatively corrupted i mean it's whether or not it's you actually buy that like oh there was you know real influence had here it's kind of inconsequential right it's this is basically just this is how it works you get rewarded for helping fuel a corrupt system which i would argue is just as bad as deliberately corrupting parts of it 100 percent, and i think like you know we're kind of tying back to like when we did start the the podcast. And like, I think the first time I had you on was to maybe talk about like, why is there this allergy to diagnosing um, issues of power and structure in the United States? And we are once again in like another incident of that where, you know, we're clearly seeing something that contradicts the usual gut instinct to, well, and, and I think, you know, too, like, there's there's somewhat of a risk, too, in focusing just on Thomas for some people, right? Where, yeah. like, I, you know, he's he's a symptom, um, a pretty, you know, egregious symptom, right? I mean, you don't, like, let the uh, growth just, you know, keep, like, protruding off your neck until it produces a second head. Uh, but, you know, he's, he's a symptom of, like, the broader disease of how, you know, we evaluate power in this country and whatnot. Yeah. Um, He's a particularly egregious example, but, you know, I think people, you know, like, will he be impeached um, as AOC is called for and whatnot? And maybe some others might have noted this as well. I think there's a high, it's highly unlikely, right? I mean, obviously, Republicans control the House anyways, where that process would start. They're not going to go along with it. But I also just don't think enough Democrats would go along with it either, because it's, again, sort of... um, you know, I, I've, I often joke in, you know, just when it comes to like almost everything in this country, right? It's, you know, it's it's wrong to point to criticize, um, but it's not wrong to do the thing that's being criticized, right? You can be <laughs> racist, but to call someone racist is an egregious like affront to them, right? You can, you know, do whatever horrible misdeed is supposedly uh, unleash the woke brigade to cancel you. Uh, that's fine, but like to actually call for someone to be canceled is not. Um, to to sexually assault, it doesn't get you in trouble, but right. to be charged with it is a is a yeah. To be accused speech. of it, to be charged with it, whatever. Like that's the problem, and and that's just kind of this this ongoing like just the like most frustrating thing. <laughs> um, really, about like just like living in the society sometimes is just the weird civil adherence to that um that idea 
I mean, to to quote the Joker, we live in a society. Yeah, we sure do. I I th- I think you're spot on though. Like there, that is like a this. I I think when people talk about political correctness, the the meanings of words are lost from when they first appeared in the vernacular, and I find that like as these discourses proceed. And we have these attitudes as well as these institutions in which we discuss politics in America. Meaning is one of these things that just gets lost with every sentence. And intellectual rigor, moral consistency are kind of secondary to this fundamental idea that you don't rock the boat. And that's what I really think is meant by political correctness. It's not about being woke, as some would say it was. Political correctness Well, they've been riding that, the train of, like, anti-political correctness well before. It's the 70s, I would say, right? Like, since the 70s. But, like, you know, what politically correct, like, meant back in the day is how do you say this without starting a ruckus? Yeah. And that's, that's the... Those are the contours in which we navigate, you know? You're not allowed to really make a, make a ruckus. You don't, you don't call the system into question. You don't discuss contradiction. The order as is, is just. It's these individual incidents that are mistakes more than anything. They're not endemic. They're, they're not, you know, symptomatic of, of, of a broader symptom. They're not part of a larger whole, and that's... I don't know. I don't want to be moralistic or egregious here, but it's it's a diseased way of thinking that seems to dominate the minds of American political media and well, and and too like that everything that you just described has been so appropriated by you know kind of the the anti woke side, right? Where it's like, well, we are like. We are trying to raise a ruckus and criticize the power structure, but like to them, the power structure is that like some trans folks exist, that like drag shows are like a thing that happens and stuff like that. And like just like such a perverse understanding of the power structure and like acting like that's really like bringing truth to power when it's just going after people who are uh, themselves, you know, just as if not more powerless than you. That's the stuff that, like, kind of, like, really, you know, like, in addition to just, like, on top of the diseased way of thinking that we don't really, like, look into that more deeply. But the fact that, you know, it's been appropriated to be used in a really destructive way is is also really problematic. 100%. Couldn't say it better myself. I guess, I guess, final, you know, I had an additional point about... Maybe we could talk about, like, just the ways in which rich people gather in secret and there is influence on the court through other things like uh, the broader Catholic movement and to the far right. But I think we've kind of beat this horse. I guess final takes is, you know, do you think this is going to result in anything for Clarence Thomas or is this another thing he skates with? I think... I think he skates with it. The The silver lining I can see is that maybe we might get, this might just like be, again, it's like another in a long list of pretty recent episodes of 
people being pissed at the Supreme Court um, and the judicial system more generally. And maybe that leads to, you know, a more serious reckoning with how do we evaluate the role of these anti-democratic institutions, right? I think that, um, you know, some people argue, I mean, like that the, the court like does the right thing sometimes because it's anti because it's not democratic. But I think that those days, I mean, we're really looking at a, uh, a brief window in the, uh, in the 60s, really, predominantly 50s and 60s. And after that, it's it's kind of gone. Um, Once again, or, the, the window was the Great Society liberal era. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like a little bit before that, because you did have um, some of, uh, you know, in his own words, uh, Eisenhower's mistakes on the court um, <laughs> that had made um, some pretty uh, big, uh, you know, liberal... Uh, changes and whatnot through the uh, the court's body but e even then right even when the court has done like the right thing in like the case like brown v board uh it doesn't you know it's without the democratic consult and without the uh you know the consent of the democratic institutions it's sort of hard to enforce uh the problem that we've gotten now is that like the liberals in terms of like how we can uh conceive of the uh institutional democratic party is just so kind of uh, just obsessed with the process that they couldn't fathom doing anything that would slightly upset, you know, the way that things are traditionally conceived of being done. They're just so subsumed in that civic religion that I just don't think that they're willing to, like, do anything meaningful. But there's, you know, I mean, I'm hopeful for younger generations getting their way up there who are a little less, like, subservient to that. I'm hopeful that voters kind of see this and, like, Again, not saying that like, oh, you know, just vote your way out of, you know, horrible <laughs> decisions made by uh, lifetime appointees, because that's obviously not going to uh, work directly. But if you can at least sort of re uh, reclaim the reins of power, or claim the reins that, you know, maybe your um, group has never really had, I think that's the stuff that uh, can maybe be the silver lining out of all of this. I, th I think that's spot on, right? Because... I think what we've criticized the Democratic Party and its leadership for is a misunderstanding of what politics intends to accomplish, or maybe this is intentional, and discerning the difference may not matter, right? Sure. But what the American right understands is you want something done, you got to get it done. You know, you, you get the numbers, you organize, you... So, somewhat egregiously, you know, push things through the system that it may not be equipped for. But to accomplish a goal, you got to work at it. And I think the Democratic Party, whether intentionally or unintentionally, has put pres the preservation of institutions and their norms above a political project. Yeah. So that's the task for the left is, you know, like... How do we? I think I think with with the left, it's more of there is a project, and if there isn't one, it can be obtained through organizing. Can the Democratic Party be the the instrument by which those goals are accomplished? That is, that's kind of what I see organizations like DSA and other like electoral efforts trying to do. Is it necessarily the way forward? It's one of the legal way legal ways forward. One of the other ones that is legal technically is, you know, union organizing. I'm not going to be one of those people who gets on a podcast and say we need a general strike and a revolution today. You can't do that without 
conditions being at a certain point. I'm not going to tell people to or get without clear demands either. Exactly, exactly. And I think like that's kind of where we're at, where it's like what the right. <laughs> Once again, we do have class politics, and these are prescribed by the right. They are organized as a class, and they do, you know, they are engaged in class warfare against the against the working class. What's the way out of the rut? That remains to be determined. I'm not. I'm not even close to beginning to answer that question, you know. But I think what we've done in this episode, and I think what we will continue to do with this show, uh, and what we've done a good job of, because I'm proud of our past work, is deciphering these tea leaves for you and understanding how they distort um, coming to these observations. That is the greenhouse that we're gaslit in, to say the least. He said the line. He said he said he said it. He said it. Still can't believe that uh that moment in Star Wars where uh Palpatine said, Yep, I'm the Phantom Menace. <laughs> oh god. Well, I guess I don't know. We we we've definitely beat this unusually threadbare outline on my part um on this episode is there anything else that i think uh that you think might be worth mentioning or you know something to maybe tie things more elegantly well yeah i mean i guess you know just kind of in sum right if you've uh, skipped to the ends uh, you know, Clarence Thomas is uh, a diseased individual um, who, one way or another, is influenced either through his, you know, acculturation with um, people like Harlan Crow and, you know, whatever that means, uh, whether you know, he's, you know, like how concerned he is considering he's like buying uh, Nazi memorabilia and, you know, proudly displaying it in his collection. Um you know, I, I think, you know, whether or not he's being, you know, bought or just kind of influenced through just, you know, being his peer and being someone who, you know, regularly socializes with him, I think either is problematic. Uh, you should be concerned about that, but know that he's a, a symptom of a much uh, broader and nastier disease. I, th- I think that's spot on. Um. I guess I'll cite some of the articles in the episode description and I'm once again speechless. <laughs> this is just one of those ones where I'm like, <laughs> yep, this is the, I mean, you know, we, we've been saying it for uh, what will now be 68 or so episodes that the system's diseased, but it will, it will manifest in ways that you were not even familiar with that you could have been familiar with. And that's where I'm at today. But silver lining is we're back. The show's back. In addition to shows, Josh, do you want to plug Monster Pop? Sure. Yeah, I'm also part of uh, the Monster Pop podcast. Um, it is a pro wrestling podcast where we cover uh, obviously pro wrestling uh, news. Um, occasionally, the political connections that sometimes emerge. Uh, within that field as well, um, as we discussed last episode, technically, you know, Donald Trump himself is a uh, WWE Hall of Famer. Uh, whether or not that's deserved or not is, uh, you know, entirely up for debate. Um, 
but yeah, so I'm on there. You can follow us at uh, Monster Pop Pod on Twitter and uh, other. Um, listen to that also wherever you can listen to podcast. Solid. Uh, I'll have the uh, links to all our social media in the description below. Uh, you can follow us for updates on Twitter at at Pod Greenhouse. Uh, you know, send, send, send us a DM. Send us a comment. How, how are we doing? You want enough question. If we get enough questions, we'll do a mailbag episode. We could do a mailbag episode. Seriously. Uh, we're, we're always, you know, we would like to make more content. Uh, we're just, you know, I mean, I, it's really my fault. I'm lazy. That's, that's really it. Don't but, listen. Uh, Audie lives to feed the content machine. <laughs> <laughs> Me, I hate feeding the content. A guy who feeds the content machine. <laughs> Dear God. Um, so yeah, that's where you can find all our stuff and, uh, we'll see you around next time, dear listeners. Thanks for tuning in. Take care.